Hi, my name is Millie. And my name is Chris. Welcome to Seco Cell, the podcast where you'll hear about a history of private prisons, how private prisons operate, and initiatives to deconstruct and abolish the prison industrial complex. In this episode, we're going to talk about the history of private prisons in relations to the PIC, also known as the prison industrial complex. To begin, it is worth mentioning that Angela Davis, who is an activist for civil rights and prison abolition, is right on point when she states that in most parts of the world, it is taken for granted that whoever is convicted of a serious crime will be sent to prison. In other words, we have gotten used to prison being the primary method to solve or rather punish people. Davis also outlines the way in which the majority of society sees the PIC and criminals, stating that we thus think about imprisonment as a reserved fate for evildoers, end quote. Furthermore, due to this ideology of evildoers and fate, as Davis states, we see the PIC as both absent and present in our society. Nonetheless, you may ask yourself, how can so many people end up in prison? Well, in the year 1980, during what is known as the Reagan era, there was a push to create more jails, and so incarceration was at an all-time high, as during this time, politicians also argued being tough on crime would keep communities free of crime. Yet during this time, the practice of mass incarceration had no effect on official crime rates. As mentioned before, imprisonment is the number one solution to most of our problems, Yet, is it effective? Well, during this time, the practice of mass incarceration had no effect on official crime rates. It was obvious that larger prison populations did not lead to safer communities, but rather to larger prison populations. Definitely. Nonetheless, as the U.S. prison system expanded, so did corporate involvement in construction, provision of goods and services, and the use of prison labor. And each new prison resulted in the development of yet another prison. And the degree to which prison building and activity began to attract vast amounts of capital, which is therefore the reason that we refer to it as a prison industrial complex. So how can we define the prison industrial complex specifically? Simply put, the PIC describes a way in which the criminal justice system, policing, and the penitentiary system work together to exploit the labor of individuals that are incarcerated to provide goods and services to multiple businesses within the private sector, as well as the government. In other words, to create profit. Moreover, you may also ask yourself, what is the point of sending people to prison? Perhaps most people believe it is more about rehabilitation purposes besides punishment. But in the past, sending someone to prison served as a way of detainment until punishment. But with the first prison built in 1829 came the idea of imprisonment being the punishment, according to Davis. Moreover, incarceration or imprisonment was believed to be healing while the prison itself was intended to give convicts the ability to reflect on their crimes and through penitence for reshaping their habits and even their souls. Now let's go ahead and dive into the deep history of the PIC. When discussing its origins, we often go back to the history of uh, chattel slavery and the development of slave patrols in the South. However, it's really important to look further back to the beginnings of early colonization in the US. 
This helps us understand how colonial legacies influence the gradual development of the PIC. According to Andrea Ritchie, we can identify early forms of policing when analyzing the ways in which European settlers displaced and killed a majority of indigenous groups already settled in the U.S. Through state-sanctioned violence, according to Ritchie, settlers were able to establish gender binaries and gender hierarchies, as well as enforcing norms that emphasized white femininity and masculinity. This served to dehumanize anyone who was non-white as they were seen as people who would never be able to fit in within these white supremacist frameworks and thus deserved uh, being killed, re relocated and enslaved. These horrific frameworks continued to dominate society as the US eventually became the colonizing entity. These colonial legacies were so powerful that we continued to see these frameworks enforced on African-Americans within the institution of chattel slavery. Exactly. These legacies contributed to the dehumanization of African-Americans and justified the violence that was directed towards them. This is where slave codes came into effect, which allowed whites to police enslaved Africans and African-Americans who, quote, stepped out of line. So once chattel slavery was abolished, slave codes were replaced with black codes, which continued to allow African-Americans to be constantly policed and easily imprisoned by the state. This is where we start to see high rates of African-Americans arrested for non-serious offenses, such as vagrancy. This allowed the South to continue to exploit African-Americans through free labor. As black codes eventually became banned, the dominant society was able to continue to implement racist policies to exploit and punish African-Americans. Black codes were abolished and turned into Jim Crow segregation. And when that was abolished, the U.S. disguised its racist policies through the guise of crimes and criminality. So now that we understand the colonial legacies that were set in place, let's fast forward to the 1970s. According to Christian Parenti in Lockdown America, Parenti describes the 70s as the era of penal rationalization and modernization. This is due to the political dialogue that was occurring that emphasized the need for prisons to become mod modernized due to the poor conditions that existed among all the prisons in the country, as well as the constant riots that were occurring at the time. Considering the colonial legacies in place, it is easy to see how people of color are severely impacted by this increase in the criminal justice system. So in short, the dialogue of the 70s helped to influence the war on crime that began under Reagan in the 80s, which became a catalyst for the eventual growth of the penitentiary system and the development of the PIC. According to historian Adam J. Hirsch, Hirsch states that we can observe the penitentiary in comparison to chattel slavery as it was practiced in the South. Both institutions subordinated their subjects to the will of others. Similar to those enslaved in the South, prison inmates followed a daily routine specified by their superiors. Both institutions reduced their subjects to dependence on others for the supply of basic human services such as food and shelter. And both isolated their subjects from the general population by confining them to a fixed habit. Exactly. This is why we may hear people express how the PIC is slavery by another name. Moreover, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, another prison abolitionist and scholar, found that in 1982 and 2000, the number of inmates in California state prisons rose by nearly 500%. Yet the reason why the prison industrial complex was seen as slavery is because two-thirds of the state's 16,000 inmates were African-Americans and Latinos. 
It is also worth mentioning that there was no evidence that people being incarcerated were criminals. According to Gilmer, more than half of the inmates had stable jobs prior to their incarceration, and others, more than 80% of them, were represented by state-appointed lawyers for their cases. In a nutshell, convicts are the living or unemployed poor, old the industrialized towns whom the PIC reaps its benefits from. Now, let's switch over to the PIC and California. We often think of California as a liberal paradise, but as we analyze the history of, of the increase of penitentiaries in California, we can see how much the carceral state has rooted itself here. According to Ruth Gilmore in her book, Golden Gulag, since 1984, California has built 23 new prison facilities, which cost about 280 to $350 million each. Along with these facilities, California also added 13 small correction facilities, as well as five prison camps and five mother prisoner centers. With this, we can see how even our own home state has become a part of the carceral state. Yes, and so the expansion of prisons and the rise of the PIC have been seen to be constructed during a time when crime was decreasing. And so because there were less people setting foot in a jail cell, the government implemented draconian drug laws and three-strike provisions. And so while making profit is not a bad thing, it is when it comes to the prison construction, for the reason being that they do not provide a service with good intentions, quality, and human conditions. It is also important to know that too often it was claimed that the reason for a boom in incarceration was due to overcrowding. And so private prisons were established as a response to the government not being able to keep up with inmates, and more so because they needed to maintain this billion-dollar industry. Nonetheless, there are still some misconceptions regarding prisons. Although some of us may view all prisons as rehabilitative or to serve the purpose of protecting us from evildoers, it is important to mention that there are public and private prisons. To put it into context and for those who need a refresher, the prison industrial complex refers to private prisons as the government and private companies equally have an interest in mass incarceration. Ultimately, there is a fundamental relationship between punishment and commerce. To add on to that, in a private prison, many of the pressures are stripped from the government and given to those private companies. So instead of struggling with all the details of operating a jail, the government is only responsible for feeding the inmates and managing the facility. Now, a government-owned penitentiary is, for is referred to as a public prison. What makes this prison different from a private prison is the fact that the government provides the prison building, staff the guards and administration, and supervise all of the inmates and all events that take place inside. Yet, even in a public prison, many services such as food service, cleaning, and maintenance are outsourced to private contractors. So, that begs the question of how a for-profit prison makes money. In our next episode of Sickle Cell, we will dive into how private prisons operate, as well as provide an analysis on GeoGroup and CoreCivic. To prepare you, here's some food for thought. According to the UC Berkeley Business Review, at its height in 2013, an approximate 220,000 inmates were held in private prisons, the two largest being CoreCivic and GeoGroup. We challenge you to remember this statistic for our next episode. You'll see that although these numbers reflect the status of private prisons, the interest of both the private prisons and the state overlap. We'll see you next time on Sickle Cell.